Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, kinesiology professor and men's golf coach at Calvin College. I'm Chad Carlson, professor of kinesiology and director of general education at Hope College. And we are coming to you from the studio of Our Daily Bread. Our Daily Bread is a ministry that distributes materials all around the world to help people grow in their relationship to God. As always, we are very thankful to be working in this studio and having the opportunity with this fine equipment to bring this podcast to you. Today we reflect on the gap, actually, between the last podcast and this one, and and we're going to have to apologize for the amount of time between that one and today. In fact, I looked, our last podcast was released on August 28, and here we are in almost mid-October. What has been going on, Chad? What have you been doing with your life, and why have we been not doing podcasts during this time? (laughs) Well, you, this is not our full-time job. Maybe we need to tell that to our listeners. This is not People all that People won't believe we do. that. They yeah. will not believe that. This is not all that we do. We actually have lives. We have jobs outside of this. The beginning of the school year is often a busy time. It's a busy time academically, but it's a busy time athletically too, isn't it? It is. Uh, it, I, it sounds kind of self-serving, but I think I've been busy with sport, faith, and life. It seems Ooh. a little too uh, too convenient to say that, but uh, <laughs> as a men's golf coach, the season started right around August 28, and uh, I've been busy with that throughout the course of the season, and then uh, courses, classes, all those sorts of things that happen um, really filled my time during the fall. There are a lot of sport events that have happened, a lot of things that we wanted to talk about, so we're going to squeeze some of those things in today. Uh, We've had an opportunity to go through the start of seasons and the end of certain seasons, certain events that have happened. I know you love golf, Chad. I know that you've been following it very closely. Tell me, uh, how much did you enjoy that Ryder Cup? Yeah. When when did that happen? Is is that done? That is just amazing. I know. know. I do have friends that like it. You know, it's my outreach. Uh, sadly, Tiger Woods. How about that? Did you notice that Tiger Woods won his first tournament, uh, sealing the comeback? I, I know he's a golfer. Yes, he, and he he did win, huh? He, that what? is correct. Okay. The Tour Championship, which is the last of the FedEx Cup uh, tournaments, he did not actually win the FedEx Cup. That's a compilation of points across a number of tournaments. But Tiger Woods actually wore red on Sunday, had a lead, and finished in the same fashion that he had done before, which is hold the lead, which is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, I think it builds a lot of excitement going into next year for golf fans and maybe even for you, Chad. You know, when Tiger Woods is playing and is playing well, that's good for the game of golf, right? It's not, um, I don't I don't consider myself to be one of those fans that will join in, jump on that bandwagon when Tiger Woods is in and is in the thick of things on Sunday. But I will say I probably actually pay a little bit of attention when he's doing well. So I don't know what that says about me, but certainly that says something about Tiger Woods and his ability to to draw in crowds, just just who he is. And now it's not even about him being a young prodigy or for me even really reaching Jack Nicklaus's record of of majors one, but he's got this unique and interesting storyline now, right? This narrative surrounding Tiger Woods and his career path is interesting, right? Yeah, and I think before before all of the controversy happened, Tiger had a certain magnetism, and people were drawn to him. He drew huge crowds on the golf course. In fact, I was at a tournament once, and 
I was standing very close to Jim Furyk, who was just the captain of the Ryder Cup, and you could have heard crickets around. I'm standing very close to Jim Furyk. He's about to hit his second shot on a par four, and nobody's around because in the group behind him is Tiger Woods. And back there, there were scads of people. You had to actually three, four, five, six deep to be able to just see him. Yeah, gosh. You know, you think about... I'm not making a parallel between Tiger Woods and Jesus Christ, but you think about the the, the ways in which the crowds sort of flock, right, to a, a, a personality, right, that there's just magnetism that certain people have for whatever reason, and we're drawn to that. Uh, Jim Furyk, though, a, a very talented golfer himself, easy to find him, easy to get, to, to, easy to see him. Yeah, right? and I do wonder what those guys think, right? They're they're yeah. the highest level of their particular sport. They're winners, they're champions, and I know they all realize that uh, with Tiger in the field, the attention and the money certainly grows. So I'm sure they appreciate that, and and they're they have actually said that they're fans of Tiger Woods and what he was able to accomplish. But still, at the same time, you're thinking, you know, I could I could take a fan or two over here. You know, golfers are generally so polite, right? And those guys are all saying the right thing. And, and it's true, Tiger Woods is good for the game of golf. But I, I agree, the reality of it is when you're playing well, I got to believe that when a, a PGA Tour golfer is playing really well and yet isn't drawing the crowds that Tiger Woods is, even on his worst days, you know, gosh, there's got to be some jealousy there, doesn't there? There's got to be a little resentment, right? Yeah. There's got to be a little envy in what he's able to garner in terms of attention. And... You know, it's interesting that even with the the story that you talk about, which is so incredibly negative about Tiger, right? He um, he still draws the same crowds. It's really interesting that before they they were drawn to excellence, and now the same thing is true. We are drawn to excellence, uh, and and maybe some of that charisma that we just can't describe, and really we're not necessarily drawn to good guys to good people Uh, there are a lot of them right that are Mm -hmm. participating in sport but they just don't have the same level of attraction and Tiger was he wasn't even all that charismatic there was just uh, his charm was almost that he was curt and he was driven and he was disciplined and he was different from the other golfers you know he wasn't necessarily polite to other golfers at at least as far as I know And, and he certainly uh, I mean, what was the cliche that, that when he would, would, would go into a press conference, he would never use three words uh, to reply if it only took two words. You know, he was just, he was short with the media. He, he got down to it, uh, got to the point, and then wanted to get back on the course, right, to play some more golf. Yeah, Tiger did not give a good interview. Tiger did not offer anything extra to help you understand him, and yet people were attracted to him and they continue to follow him. And now for similar reasons, but also I think different reasons, this idea that now he's a story of sport redemption. That's Mm -hmm. not the same as the redemption we might talk about in a faith environment, but there are parallels. And Mm -hmm. that sport redemption is someone who was down, uh, and he he was truly down, uh, largely related to his own doing, but also the injuries. The injuries were uh, the kinds of injuries that no one expected he could come back from when you fuse your spine and you're in a rotation sport like that with all that power everyone kind of figured he'll be able to play golf again but he'll never be able to play the same way with the same amount of power and the other thing that tiger woods did all the time was practice and if you're going to practice you've got to have your body in peak physical condition just for the amount of repetitions and so tiger has apparently been able to practice he's been able to go back to some of his old routines get his body in good shape and prepare himself to be a champion. 
Well, you mentioned that uh, he was not one of the good guys originally. That's part of the storyline, too, is how he's maybe softened a little bit. Um, But I wonder, looking at you as a college golf coach, how much does it matter to have good guys on your team? You know, golf is a sport that's maybe more full of good guys, or at least it seems like it's full of good guys more than other sports. But is that an important thing to you as a coach? Well, you know, both of us sort of view that uh, that label of good very differently, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we recognize that good is it can be very, you know, skin deep. Um, mm-hmm. We all would say have sinned. And what we see on the outside in terms of goodness may or may not be true as we look at a person's heart. And that gets revealed over and over again. But the truth is, when I talk to my team, we talk about parallel goals. And one of those goals is to play with excellence. And so we, we want to win and we're going to work really hard to win. And the second thing I say that's really practical is we want to be the kind of team that other teams like to play with. Golf is a sort of a mm. parallel side-by-side sport. We don't combat, even though sometimes we might like to get our clubs out and smack the other guy. I mean, mm-hmm. truthfully, we're, we're competing alongside of people. And so since we're competing alongside, we want to be the kind of team that other teams enjoy being around. And essentially that comes in different forms based on our personality, but it is something that we keep revisiting over and over again. Can we be that kind of team? And we really appreciate other teams that you can tell that that's one of their goals. Now there's always uh, ex- uh, people that maybe don't fit the mold on a particular team and they might carry the reputation of a particular team for a length of time, but the truth is, uh, if you start building that in, then that becomes sort of a, a a goal and something to work toward that I've seen really develop across the four years that they're on a on a college golf team. I get them as freshmen, and often for anyone, whether you're a college student or an athlete, you're often just trying to get people to think about others more than mm. themselves. That's a hard thing for all of us. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. You said you want to be a team. You want yours to be a team that other teams like to play with. I have never heard that before. I've heard we want to be a team that other teams appreciate playing against, that we we put up a good fight, we we put up a good test, whatever that may be. But we want to be a team that other teams want to play with. And that seems to be the essence of competition, right? At least etymologically, that word competition means to struggle with, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And we we posted that on our Twitter feed uh, this week. That's exactly what competition is. And so that mantra is sort of embodying all that competition is and can be and maybe is supposed to be, right? Well, and I think I, I chose that word particularly because of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that there is both a with and against element going on in sport. Obviously, an opponent is someone you're trying to beat and you're working against them all the time. So this idea that we're cooperating is sort of a, it's underneath the overall goal. And the cooperation in sport comes with this shared idea that we're going to both adhere to the rules. We're going to both take this seriously. And both sides are going to aim for the highest level of excellence, recognizing that we wouldn't get there really without each other. Golf is a sport that I think makes it really easy to to show excellence and, and to, to, com- to, to participate with, right, to play with an opponent. Because, uh, you know, if we are behaving in the way that we're supposed to be behaving, if we're acting with, with etiquette, acting the way we're supposed to be acting, it seems as though that presents both us and our opponents with the best opportunity to succeed, to excel, right? So maybe there's something about golf overall that I should get more into because it promotes 
Good Listen behavior. to that. Good wow, people. we have accomplished something here at uh, at this podcast. So I, I think we could call it good right there. We but. can call it good. How about if we move on to another uh, another sport? I got an idea. You got an idea? Yeah. So Does it have to do with a good guy? I think so. Uh, and maybe you would evaluate this differently. But uh, last night, uh, if you're an American, you've kind of gotten used to this idea of Monday Night Football. And at Monday Night Football, there was an extra story beyond the game. And it involved a good guy, I think, by the name of Drew Brees. Are you familiar with Drew Brees? Familiar with him. Very, very good guy. At least he seems like it, right? Really, really good guy. Yep. We we always have to be careful because we don't know them. True. But in general, uh, Drew Brees has been adopted by um, a city, uh, largely after he was a free agent, came from another place and moved into a city and played quarterback for the New Orleans Saints for the last uh, large. I don't even know when he came there, but it's a, a a number of years he's been there. And what really struck me last night. Now he broke a record. He broke Brett Favre's record for most yards passed. Um, and he broke Peyton Manning's record, which is higher than Brett Favre's. Yes. Right. So two records last night. Um, and uh, I mean, we're talking seventy-one thousand yards of passing. It's ridiculous. It's amazing. Um, and he all clear across the world. And part of that is um, his ability to just stay healthy and stay on the field and his general excellence from season to season. But I think he's he's partially known for that, but he's also really known for um, being sort of the point person for a city that was in despair. Remember that? I do. And this was more than a decade ago, right? Hurricane Katrina came through and hit New Orleans really hard. Drew Brees was the face of the New Orleans Saints at the time as a quarterback. He still is and was was really one of the leaders of the efforts to help sort of rebuild the city. You know, the Saints um, happened to be this this really positive and powerful um, diversion in the midst of the rebuild of the city after Katrina that occurred was that August 2006 and, and beyond that, you know, uh, when people are looking for good things in their lives, when they've lost everything, all their material possessions, family is scattered, loved ones that have passed or have come ill because of the effects of, of the hurricane, Sunday afternoons ended up being a really, really good time for the citizens of New Orleans to watch Drew Brees lead his team just like he had sort of led the city in some sense to get back up on their feet. And then isn't, isn't that amazing that that's one of the things about sport that it's so hard to describe to people that uh, don't follow it, uh, don't participate. There is sort of this curative and cathartic effect of that diversion that you talk about, that momentary joy that allows us an opportunity to just step away from some of life's difficulties and maybe collectively, as in this case, enjoy some success and drama and um, this uh, this chance for a team to overcome odds that you would expect they wouldn't be able to overcome. It's kind of, it's what's been called the joy of sport, this ability to rise up when things are really looking bleak. Last night watching the game, I don't watch a ton of, of, of NFL. I'm not a huge team of a uh, huge fan of one NFL team or another. I play fantasy, but other than that, you know, that's sort of my interest in the NFL right now. Uh, but watching the game last night, after Drew Brees broke the record, I saw, I saw sitting in the front row of the stadium, I saw a grown man crying. Wow. Yeah, he was crying because Drew Brees had broken this record. Now I'm assuming he had a, a Saints jersey on. He appeared to be sort of a super fan, but also appeared just like, just like you or me. Um, 
I don't, I don't know. I, I would have to have a real strong attachment. I mean, clearly this guy had a real strong attachment to, to Drew Brees and to the Saints. And, you know, this, this sort of collective joy that was in the stadium, I was just watching on television. And, yeah, it choked me up a little bit to see him go hug and kiss his family and his kids, uh, knowing that he's sort of in the same stage of life as I am. But, but to see this total stranger uh, in tears because of a record that had, been, that had been broken on a football field that this fan will never uh, have any connection to outside the fact that he's a Saints fan, right? He had nothing to do with this record. He will not benefit from it materially. Uh, and yet it mattered a lot to him. You know, and I look at a guy like this and I think, you know, no matter what else is going on in his life, this is a moment of pure joy for him, right? It probably has been a Saints fan for a long time. Probably has been, you know, seen Drew Brees throughout his career at, with the Saints and this is just a moment that he's he's never going to forget. And I have to think that part of that joy is connected to that larger story of Katrina, his connection to the city. And the truth is that the Saints winning or losing has nothing to do with rebuilding levees. And it has nothing to do with restoring homes and some of the work that had to happen. And it certainly doesn't soothe the loss of life that came from Katrina. But at the same time, like it did for, like the Yankees did for the people that had survived 9-11. It provides this opportunity, this moment of joy, this moment of diversion where people can sit back. And I think it's great for for the human soul to be able to sit back and just enjoy something, enjoy victory and in some cases even with with in the 9-11 situation the Yankees ultimately didn't win the World Series they just made it dramatic they just came back and and uh, in their moments in the Yankee Stadium had some comeback wins that were really epic and people said that they felt a certain warmth from that a certain togetherness from that it was momentary and they acknowledged it and I think to a large measure we can celebrate that part of sport Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the ESPN 30 for 30 short films. I guess really good series. And one of them is called First Pitch. And it's about George W. Bush coming to throw out the first pitch, the first World Series game at Yankee Stadium, immediately following mm. the 9-11 events. And there's this, it's a, it's a short documentary, but one of the interviews is with uh, one of the chief deputies of, of, um, of, of the Secret Service. And, and, and he says, he's from New York himself, and he says, you know, with everything else going on, we were worried about another attack. Mm-hmm. We were worried about people's lives getting back together. We were worried about our own existence, knowing that Yankee Stadium may have been another target. And he said, but in the midst of all of that, we could come together as a group of people, collectively as humans, and share joy in watching the Yankees. And I think the fear, the worry that you're talking about is really summed up in that fear. And everyone was, every, everybody at that time was feeling fear. They didn't really know exactly how to describe it, but they, and they didn't know from where another attack might come or what's happening in the city. And there was a great deal of sadness. And so there are lots and lots of stories of people turning to their faith, appropriately so, and clinging to their family, appropriately so. So sport didn't replace those things, but the chance for the Yankees to fill a space and also get back to regular life. And so part of overcoming whatever difficulty you have, and I 
I have friends right now that are overcoming some significant difficulties, often health difficulties, and that routine of regular life can be very restorative, and sport supplies some of that routine. So support supplies that opportunity to get back into what you were doing before, which can be helpful and healthy and restorative. So that's the paradox of sport, really, is that it can provide um, a healthy diversion when we need it amidst all of our concerns, fears, all the daily necessities, the things that we need to tend to, the problems in this world, sport can provide this diversion, but it can also now, it's a, it's a part of our real life, right? So it's not just this other thing, but it also is a you know, part and parcel that we know, especially in the fall, this rhythm for Americans, especially who are inclined towards the game of football, there's a real rhythm there and, and participating in, spectating sport, football specifically, allows us to sort of continue through in a rhythm that, that lets us know that, uh, um, that we are in a place of security and comfort amidst all of the, the fears and all of the, the necessities, all the challenges in, in everyday life. And I think we can celebrate that. And at the same time, you spoke of a paradox and this idea that w- if we just left this conversation right where it is, people might wonder, wow, you're, you're celebrating sport, this sort of earthly entity with almost a level of transcendent reality. And in some ways, we might say that Bart Giamatti, the former baseball commissioner, said that you know baseball was a, a glimpse of paradise or playfulness was a glimpse of mm-hmm. paradise. And I think in many ways we could say that. And at the same time, we all know that maybe that gentleman who was crying uh, at the moment that Drew Brees broke the record uh, may have some unhealthy attachments that <laughs> that uh, also are a part of sport. Can can we figure out this line, this difference between what is a a healthy diversion and an unhealthy obsession? Yeah, I'm not sure we'll be able to figure out a line, but certainly we can, I think, separate what might be healthy and what might be unhealthy. And I I agree. I bring up the example of the Saints fan last night because it's hard to watch any football game and not see diehard fans that we would all sort of point fingers at and say that is that is an obsession that's probably unhealthy right and, well it's easy for us to point fingers to do that but you see the fan with the face paint or maybe the shirt off in in sub you know sub 30 degree weather at, at Lambeau Field in Green Bay and in, in the middle of the winter we see some things and we think boy those are probably obsessed fans and that's not really a healthy thing when I do that, um, my wife often very quickly corrects me and says, wait, wait, wait a minute now. Let's take a look at your obsessions with, for instance, Penn State football, right? Which at times is very unhealthy as well. Um, so yeah, how do, we, how do we determine when we've gone too far or when sort of this healthy diversion has become an unhealthy obsession? So I don't have to worry too much about pointing the finger because I have plenty of uh, opportunities to look back at my own life and see an unhealthy <laughs> obsession. Just like you, I have, I've had my own, and uh, it's something that I think as humans we continue to struggle with, especially if we don't withdraw, right? Mm-hmm. And so withdrawal can uh, sometimes be the appropriate antidote, uh, but often we're, we're not really called to withdraw. We're more called to check mm-hmm. our allegiances and check those things that... Uh, are clear. And so when I uh, think about some of the warning signs, I kind of come back to some of the same things. And for me and for others that I've seen around me, one of those things is just sort of a lingering unhappiness. Hmm. I remember once when I was uh, at the University of North Carolina uh, in graduate school, you as a as a North Carolinian, 
you think about Tar Heel basketball. Sure. And really, you kind of build your year around Tar Heel basketball. And when you get into the uh, NCAA tournament and March Madness, um, this is the the ultimate moment. Mm-hmm. And I remember one year, we're getting ready, uh, getting all excited for the game, and we sit down and we watch a first-round loss uh, from a really low-seeded team. I think it was Xavier, if I'm thinking back. It was Xavier beating the Tar Heels, a huge upset. One crowd is extremely excited. The other totally dejected. And I'm I'm a pretty young guy at the time and I'm I'm married my wife uh, the same uh, kind of force your wife plays in your life she plays in mine but ultimately we were both kind of so totally unhappy not only in the moment but through the length of the that entire March Madness we were we were not interested anymore at all we mm. just withdrew entirely from it and just got really annoying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to be around people that are carrying it that far. And so I think for me, um, sport has emotion, right? And so if you're going to celebrate with vigor on one side, you're going to feel a lot of pain on the other side. But when that lingers and flows into the rest of your life, that's that's one warning sign, at least for me, that it's moved from healthy to obsession. Yeah. And I, I can look back on my own life too, right? This is This is probably a healthy thing for fans to do is to be able to self-reflect as opposed to pointing out in, in others the the obsessive tendencies. And I, I, go, I go through that as well. And one thing that's helped me in the past has been uh, while whenever I watch games, and specifically Penn State football games, whenever I watch, I certainly want to see them win. But when I, when I go into a game uh, excited just to watch a great football game and hoping to see some excellent play, then I can... I can deal with Penn State losing a little bit better. And it's, it's a small, maybe it's just a semantic twist, but in my mind, if I'm going into the game saying, you know what, I just hope, I, I want us to, to play well, I want to see a really well-played football game, in some sense then I can leave the game uh, a little bit less unhappy if Penn State loses, for instance, and maybe even a little bit less happy if they win, but but ha- you know less happy in a in a maybe uh, unhealthy way. Mm. So they, they had a, a really close loss to Ohio State last weekend, and... That's one that normally would have put me in the tank for days. And for, I don't know why, but I sort of had this out-of-body experience afterwards where I just, yeah, all right, game's over. We lost. I'm sad. But, um, hey, life, life goes on. And, um, it, you know, my wife's jaw just dropped when she asked me l- later in the night, you know, how, how are you feeling about this? And I'm actually pretty good. You're kidding me. There's no way you're, you're okay after a loss like that. But I don't know what it is. But um, I feel like when, when I entered sort of watching this game, uh, on television, I was in a pretty good place, and, and I feel like I was able to sort of um, maintain sort of a, a healthy interest in, in the game throughout the game. And maybe it was because I was with some friends who who were not Ohio State fans, so they weren't rooting against me. I didn't see them as enemies, um, but it, it was just it was a healthy situation. And if I could bottle that up and take that into every Saturday afternoon, I, I would. I just haven't quite found the recipe, and I haven't quite found the right bottle yet. Yeah, I think you're really getting on to something there. The heart that we have going into a sporting contest is everything. Mm. And that line that we're, or that disposition that we're trying to explain is one that is not um, withdrawn. It's Mm. not uninvested. We certainly Mm -hmm. want to be a part of the experience. We want to risk Right? We want right. to get in there Absolutely. and have this opportunity to win, and we know that we, we may end up sad mm-hmm. coming out the other side. 
this last Friday, uh, my son's football team, which had been kind of on a roll, lost. And when you see your own children lose, you sometimes get really, in this case, I could be the voice for my wife. Might, might be the first time in my life that I've been able to say, dear, they're going to play again next week. <laughs> she was pretty upset by this loss. And I think it was my heart going in. And oddly enough, um, prior to the game, there was a moment where uh, it was announced that the football coach, the former football coach of the team that we were playing against, had had passed away that mm -hmm. day, mm -hmm. which sort of jolts a person back into reality and mm -hmm. reminds us, um, you know, just of the relative nature of sport, even though we love it, enjoy it, participate in it, and risk, at the same time, it has its place. Yeah. And I think... We don't talk about it much as Christians, but there is a virtue called detachment. This idea that somehow this ultimate uh, result is not related to the ultimate result of our mm -hmm. lives, mm -hmm. right? The, the fact that Jesus has already won. Right. And so we can invest in this small result, win or lose, recognizing that in the bigger picture, it's going to take a relative place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's real risk. There certainly is in our sports, and yet it, it is relative. It, it's relative. It's relatively less important than the risks that we take uh, having to do with surviving a disease like, like this coach had, had fought with, right? Uh, there, there's a different level of, um, of, of life that's involved in that risk as opposed to in this game. We go, we play the game. We invest in that heavily. Our emotions are there. We want to win. We give it everything we have, right? We play with 110%, right, is what we say. And yet that risk is is not generally not life threatening. It's it the stakes are real, but they're generally um, they're generally not not as tangible as other things that we may risk in this life. Well, this has been a lot of fun, and uh, I'm wondering why we took a month off because I think we just scratched the surface, and there's a lot of things to talk about. Golf was the regard. issue, I think. Yeah, yeah. maybe it, it was, was golf. The well, then it was worthwhile. <laughs> so. What this reminds me of are the kinds of conversations that happen in in uh, places where people want to talk about sport and faith together. And one of those places is is this conference that's coming up in in almost a year, uh, the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity, which this podcast is partially in place to help us tell you about. So. We're uh, excited about this conference. It's coming up on October 23 through 27, 2019. It's a Wednesday through a Sunday morning when we'll have a worship service. And we're excited to gather academics and practitioners from around the globe. At the last conference, we had more than 25 countries represented. And at this conference, we have lots of keynote speakers from around the world that are going to come in and talk about sport and faith from their particular perspective. Over the course of the next several months, what we plan to do is bring in some of those speakers and give them an opportunity to speak here on the podcast. So we're really excited about sort of starting to get closer to a countdown. We got a long way to go, but we're getting closer to a countdown and getting excited to gather this group of people together and talk about sport and faith in, uh, in a context where everybody's kind of on the same level. In the meantime, check out our website, follow us on Twitter at Sport Theology. And thanks again for listening to 
Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. Uh, If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find it on iTunes. And if you get a chance, give us one of those five-star reviews. We'd really like that.